Well, apparently God wants me to be miserable. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hey, welcome in. This is going to be a different kind of podcast today. I'm going to take one theme and unpack it. You probably got a little taste of that in the opening there. Does God want me to be miserable? It comes from the idea that a whole lot of people aren't really convinced we should enjoy our work. Well, I've spent my whole life trying to convince them otherwise, and I want to do the same for you today. So we're going to talk about that specifically from a pretty theological standpoint, because that's where most of the basis of the doubt comes from. People who are the most spiritual are the most unlikely to question, can I really enjoy my work? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go through one question from a listener that really captures the heart of thousands of questions that I've gotten over the years. And we're just going to kind of unpack it. So we're going to address some issues like, I'm trying to just serve God rather than follow my own dreams. Why are you still a wretch? That's an interesting word. We'll talk about that a little bit. Does God want you to go to Africa? I've been called to full-time ministry. All right, now we're going we're gonna to dig into a whole bunch of those. Here's our quotation for the day, and it comes out of Ecclesiastes, out of the Bible. And it says this in Ecclesiastes 3.13, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Wow, we want that gift. We're not looking for continued misery. We're looking for that gift. Well, let's do this. I want to thank a couple of our sponsors that make the show possible week after week. And then we'll go right into this tough question. We'll just dig in it for a while, see where it leads us. Well, I want to mention my friends at Harry's. You know that I start my day off every day shaving with my Harry's razor. Just an amazing experience. You know, it's one of those things that we as guys do. It's not particularly something we probably look forward to, but it's like brushing your teeth. It's a great way to feel good, look good, ready to start the day. And I know that usually the experience is to go to the drugstore, look at those high-priced things behind a plexiglass case. You don't have to do that with Harry's. You can get them shipped right to you. You get those German-engineered five-blade cartridges for a close, comfortable shave. Factory direct prices come. They cut out the middleman. They own the factory. They're selling their blades at what's going to be half the price of the leading brands. So you can start off with a set called the Truman. It's a great option for new customers. An amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German-engineered razors. Plus... There's a special offer for you fans of 48 Days. Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase when you visit harrys.com slash 48 days. So just go to harrys.com slash 48 days right now to redeem your offer. Hey, if you're a small business owner like I am, probably one of your least favorite things to do is taking care of the books. I know that's true for me. I was talking to my accountant yesterday and we were talking about all the things that Fresh Books offers us. And I want to tell you about 
fresh books. I'm recommending that you try it to keep track of your expenses and your income. If you go to freshbooks.com slash 48 days, then enter 48 days in the how did you hear about a section, you get a free unrestricted month of use. Now here's the deal. You can get professional looking invoices in about 30 seconds. They're really cool. I had somebody do some work for me here recently and he gave me at the end of the work an invoice. It was a little over $12,000 and it was on a piece of white paper scribbled out in pencil. That meant he didn't even have a copy of it. And I thought, dude, this would make your whole business look so much more professional if you used fresh books. And I told him about it. He agreed that he would check it out. Hey, here's a couple things that are really important. FreshBooks customers double, on average, double their revenue in the first 24 months. I mean, how cool is that? Sometimes just paying attention to the details is the very thing you need to make your business grow. 97% of customers highly recommend FreshBooks. So check it out. Go to FreshBooks.com slash 48 days. And they, again, enter 48 days in the how did you hear about us section. Get started with your free month of use. All right, now we're going to go right into this very pertinent question that I have heard in so many different ways over the years. For the last 25 years, I've been working with people and helping them understand how to find or create work that you love. I mean, it's obviously, you know, the title of one of my books, 48 Days to the Work You Love. I mean, that's my message. And time and time again, I find people who really question, is that really possible? Not only is it really possible, but in a larger looming question, is it really even right? Isn't that just selfish, egotistical, to do something that you enjoy? Isn't there a larger question being asked here? So we're going to approach it in that way. Now, the question comes from Jacob. I got this question over two months ago. I just put it on the side. It's a, it's a lengthy, well-thought-out question. I knew I was going to save it for a particular time, and so we're going to devote the entire podcast to unpacking this issue. Here's Jacob's note. Dan, tonight I came to an understanding. In your book, 48 Days to the Work You Love, you state Now, this is right at the end of chapter one in the new 10th anniversary edition of 48 Days to the Work You Love. When we are not true to ourselves, to our unique God-given characteristics, we lose the power of authenticity, creativity, imagination, and innovation. Our life becomes performance-based, setting the stage for compromise in all other areas of our lives. When I first read this, like many parts of your book, it stood out to me as something important and noteworthy, but I didn't quite get it. I understood or at least could accept the first sentence as being true or likely true, but the second part, although just as profound, I couldn't quite wrap my head around and even seemed a little extreme. Tonight on my way home from working my shift at a good paying government job, I understood exactly what you're saying. My thought process went something like this. You know, I could do this job. I could make a career out of it, and even though it really isn't what I like or what want to be doing, it's easy enough. I can just coast through it, make a living, do enough to get by, and live my life. This job doesn't have to be hard if I do the bare minimum, just do my job, there are benefits, etc. But that isn't me. To me, that seems a lot like death. I understand what you meant by your life becoming performance-based, But to say that it opens you up to compromise in all the areas of your life may actually be putting it mildly. If I were to do that, then 
That is to do this job just to get by because it's easy and pays the bills. I would not feel alive. And if there is no life, then by definition, it would feel like death. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not referring to actual death or any type of self-harm. It's just that I completely understand. At least I think that's what you're saying. So I've come to the conclusion that I cannot go down that road. Jacob continues, he says, I desperately want to find my calling or vocation as you call it. And I do not want to continue in this job, even with more than seven years in this and a similar position with this agency. The problem is that even though I've been thinking about this, praying about this, reading through your book, I still have no idea what I want to be doing. I will admit that I'm not yet finished with your book right now. I'm still working on the day where I write my resume. I'm just feeling discouraged at this point. To add to the confusion, now this is where it gets really tricky. To add to the confusion, I've been struggling with some of the other assertions you make, such as it is okay to look for a job I love. As a Christian, I understand my purpose is to please God and to serve Him, which primarily includes loving God and loving people. Although I have found much encouragement from reading what I have in your book, I still find the idea of finding work I love hard. This is primarily because of other things I hear or read, mostly read, saying something to the effect of, well, whatever you do, do it for God because he's the one you are serving. I've encountered this on multiple occasions. First, when I was listening to the audio version of Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, and more recently, while reading an app on my phone, a couple of days ago, the lesson was titled, You Have Purpose. So I specifically wanted to read it, but then I got to this part which said, in giving examples of a way to find purpose, an employee in an unsatisfying job might find his purpose in doing his work conscientiously, remembering it is the Lord he is serving. At this point, my heart sank. I thought, am I really supposed to just keep going on in this, putting on a smile, telling myself, well, it's the Lord I'm serving. Granted, it's the Lord I'm serving. And if this is where he wants me, then that is exactly what I intend to do. And it's what I do when I'm at work. At least that's my goal. But things like this really get under my skin and I start to wonder if I'm looking at this wrong or if I'm having a bad attitude. Maybe I just don't like work. However, I don't believe that. I think I do like work and would love to find work I love and serve the Lord wholeheartedly and whatever that work may be. I hope that isn't too much rambling to be understood. And Jacob concludes here at this point. Like I said, it's becoming even more clear that I'm not where I want to be or even should be. But what I really need to know is where I should where I should be. I'll continue your 48 days process. I just don't know what else to do. Anyway, thank you for taking your time and reading this. I'm sure God will provide as he always does. I just can't give up. Thank you for all you do, Jacob. Well, Jacob, thank you for your question. And again, I, I share it because it shares the heart of so many questions that I get that are similar to that. Is it really right for us to want work that we love? So let's unpack this a little bit. I'm not sure where all this will take this. Let's just unpack this a little bit. In Matthew 22, 36 to 39, there was a lawyer that challenged Jesus by asking him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus answered him saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what does that mean? What do you like doing? What are you good at? What are you uniquely gifted to do? Now, I grew up as the son of a pastor. I was pretty much afraid of these questions. 
I was also pretty sure that if I really submitted my life to God, he'd ask me to go to Africa to be a missionary. You know, so my choices were either to submit to God and be miserable or follow my own desires and show myself to be the selfish, greedy, egotistical person I really am. Or is there an option C? Now, a lot of times you hear me talk here on the 48 Days podcast about this. We look at option A and B when really we ought to look for options C, D, E, F, and so on. There's a whole lot more. Usually, it's usually not that black and white. And I look for both and solutions rather than either or. So either I could submit myself to God. He'd probably ask me to go to Africa where I'd be miserable, hate my life, or I just follow my own desires you know, and totally ignore God's leading. Wow, I don't think those are the only two options. What if there's an option C? What if God wanted me to follow my passions, my unique gifts, and use those in ways that could impact thousands of people for good? I mean, thinking that God is going to somehow crush us, that he's going to want us to do something we absolutely hate. I mean, that's a sadistic view of God. I mean, that would be a capricious being that would want us to do that. I mean, think about it in terms of a biological father. In Matthew seven eleven, it says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We would expect a dad to want the very best for his children. I mean, if I know that my son wants a new red bike and I go down to the store and I say, no, you know, blue is better. You know, just, you know, forget that. You know, I know you want red, but no, blue's better. Just learn to live with it. I mean, can you imagine a dad doing that? No, we want to give our kids the things that they're excited about, the things that would thrill them. Why would our heavenly father be different than that? How can we frame it in a way where we would expect him to want us to do things that make us miserable that we do not really want to do? You know, there's, there's an old, theology out there. I cringe when I even say it because it's called worm theology. You ever heard that? I mean, worm theology, there was a, there was a pastor who really made his whole platform based around worm theology. You know, it's a term, golly, that I, I, I guess it, it means that in light of God's holiness and power an appropriate emotion for us is a very low view of ourselves. And, and some suggest that because of this very low view of ourselves, God is more likely to have pity on us and to show us mercy and compassion. Well, you know, and then there are, there are songs. You know, I know there are popular songs, but I think we misinterpret them. When we talk about being worms or being a wretch, and oh my gosh, I mean, it, it's popular. Let me give you a couple quick clips here just to remind you how prevalent this is. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a There you go. 
for such a wretch as I. And here's another one. Of course, this is, you know, probably the most famous Christian song in history. You'll know where it's going. You know the lines. You know the lyrics. Once again, okay, but here's the deal. Saved a rich like me. Yeah, I was that, but not anymore. We don't stay there. Yeah, the, the dictionary defines wretch as an unfortunate or unhappy person. Poor creature, poor soul, poor thing, poor unfortunate, informal, poor devil. Here's some synonyms for wretch. Scoundrel, villain, rogue, rascal, reprobate, criminal, miscreant, good for nothing. Okay, if you were that, then hopefully your spiritual experience changed you from that to something else. And in Romans, it talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that transformation, not staying there, being a miserable wretch. Goodness sakes. I mean, I think God created us with a purpose. And once we define what that purpose is, that ought to lead to something good. That ought to lead to something beautiful. Now, I talked about when I was a little boy, my dad was a pastor, and I really did. I mean, I really had this fear. Well, I had this image that the most high calling, the most sacred thing we could possibly do was being called to be a pastor, teacher, missionary, evangelist. I mean, those were the real special callings. And if you really spend yourself, boy, you were probably going to land on one of those. And believe me, none of those sounded very appealing to me. I didn't want to be any of those. I didn't see any of those people that were living lives that I wanted to live. Well, certainly there are people in those positions who are fulfilled and happy in what they're doing. I just came back from a Miller family reunion. Joanne and I went up to New York. Happens every three years. My heritage is Mennonite and Amish. So most of my family is still Mennonite and Amish. All the cousins, aunts and uncles. Golly, I've got some delightful relatives in that arena. But Edith is a first cousin of mine. She never married. She was a missionary to Africa her entire life. I was really intrigued by that. I saw what she did. I saw it as something that has a lot of hardship. You know, but in talking to Edith about it now, now Edith is now now 90 years old, but in talking to her, she didn't see it as a hardship at all. She loved it. She has so many stories about the little kids that she had the privilege of working with. So it wasn't a hardship. It wasn't something that God oppressed her with. It was where she felt fulfilled, where she felt totally fulfilled and called using her gifts to be a missionary to Africa. Now, on the other hand, talk to another cousin of mine, 84 years old, great guy, just a great sense of humor. He's a farmer. His dad was a farmer. When he was 16 years old, dad said, okay, it's time to quit school. You need to be a farmer. I had talked a little bit in the big group of our family reunion about my own academic journey and some of the things that I've done, you know, with various degrees and all. Well, anyway, so my cousin is talking to me and he said, I really wanted to go to school. 
He teared up. He's 84 years old. He teared up when he talked about this. He said, I wanted to go to school. I wanted to have some other opportunities, but dad said I couldn't do that. He said I needed to farm. Now here's a dad who said, okay, ignore your passions, your talents, your gifts, your abilities. Ignore those because I want you to farm. That's the kind of capricious God that some people think God is. And in this case, now again, I'm talking about my uncle there, but it, did my cousin hold him in high esteem? No, unfortunately, that's not the relationship that they had through the years. He saw his dad as some people view God as somebody mean, demanding, requiring you to do things that you didn't want. Forget what you wanted. Well, that's not what we're looking for. My goodness. You know, let, let me read you another couple sections out of 48 days. These are examples that where I unpacked the same kind of quandary as a pastor of a small church. Rob was fulfilling the multiple duties of a pastor. He was the teacher, encourager, comforter, hospital visitor, administrator, and friend. Surely there could be no better expression of a godly calling coming from a blue collar working family. Rob had the desire to make a difference, to lead people into their best lives, to be recognized in the community and to provide financially for his wife and children. He'd experienced a dramatic change in his own life and had chosen the path that seemed most obvious to help others find answers to life's biggest questions. And yet Rob was experiencing tremendous unrest. He was quick tempered at home and frustrated with the demands of his congregation. With the meager salary provided, financial strains were constant. Rob was working as a night desk clerk at a local hotel just to add a few dollars to his income. Yet he was determined to hang on to what surely was his calling don't open doors in the clear sense of doing what is right confirm the accuracy of his direction or do they how do we develop a clear sense of direction regarding our careers are open doors family influence educational opportunity and new technologies are the best determinants of our direction well i go on from there but in in that later in the chapter i write in rob's case we were able to identify his passion for painting beautiful works of art However, the challenge of providing for a wife and five children seemed to make painting and creating art unrealistic or impractical. Another issue that frequently misdirects people from their best callings. Fortunately, Rob was able to create a dramatic transition. For four years, he did faux finishing, creating visual beauty by using brushes, sponges, and rags in the walls of people's homes and offices. That time of transition allowed him to produce the needed income for a growing family and to establish his reputation as a credible artist. Today, no longer a pastor and no longer doing faux finishes, he creates dramatic works of art with a musical theme. They explode with the spiritual passion with which he completes each project. He's generating eight to ten times the income he was generating previously and is able to minister in a way more authentic and fitting for him. He shared with me that as a pastor, people knew what to expect of him, what he would think and say. Now he's the artist, having unique opportunities to relate to many people. They openly share their hurts, frustrations, and vulnerabilities in ways that they never did to the pastor. He now understands that a church-related job is not more godly if it's not right for him. God gifts each of us with unique characteristics. Understanding our skills and abilities, our personality tendencies, and equally important, our values, dreams, and passions is the first step in identifying the right job. I have 
that's the end of my reading there, but I have in my office here, beautiful, beautiful picture that Rob did. It's gorgeous. It's a $10,000 piece. He gave it to me just out of appreciation after we completed this redirection process, but he's gone on to amazing success in that spot where he's using the talents, gifts, and passions that God gave him. And we got to get rid of this idea that doing something godly is probably being a preacher or whatever. There's a quotation from Dr. Martin Luther King who said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. So back to Jacob's question. You know, are just a few called? I mean, we often hear people say, well, I've been called to full-time ministry. What does that imply? And I, I know that I'm probably stepping on toes here. What does that imply for somebody to say, I've been called to full-time ministry? What that implies is that, well, too bad for the rest of you poor suckers out there who are just, you know, working jobs and making money and providing for your families and blessing your community and giving to worthy causes. You know, too bad for you. I'm called to full-time ministry. And just last week, I got a phone call from a guy that I've known for years. I mean, I recognized it. I had him in my phone. So his name came up when the call came in. I says, hey, how's it going? Well, he lost his job, had difficulty finding another one, went through a long period of time. And then the magic occurrence, I've been called to full-time ministry. Well, he described what he was doing, working with an organization, certainly worthy work. But he was raising his monthly living expenses so he could do the work God called him to. I had a very frank conversation with him. He's a trusted friend. I have a relationship with him, and I felt like I had earned the right to, to speak openly. I said, I think you've got a really big challenge ahead of you to go around calling on your friends like me with the implication that the work you're doing is more godly than what we're doing, so we should fund your living expenses so you can do that work. I said, I hope that the work that I'm doing every day is godly, that it's ministering to people who need hope and encouragement. So it's bringing the same kind of end result to the people that I work with as customers and clients as you intend to do through your nonprofit. Just hard for me to get my head around that. I mean, if I'm not in full-time ministry, call me out on it. If I'm not in full time doing what God has gifted and equipped me, prepared and positioned me to do, call me out on it. I need to change what I'm doing. But I think I am, just in case you're wondering. Well, here's another example from 48 Days to the Working Love. Pastor Jones sat in my office, slouched down in the big chair, struggling to relay the events of the last few days. After 19 years of faithful service as a pastor, he had been informed that his contract would not be renewed. No matter how gentle the delivery, the message screamed out at him. He had been fired. How could this happen to a man of God, a man who had committed his life to serving God in the most socially recognized path of service? The anger and sense of betrayal came exploding out as we began to explore his options for moving on. 
The portrayal of the preceding years, however, relayed a series of red flags that had been ignored. Pastor Jones was now grossly overweight, having drowned some of his frustrations in eating. He was on medication for depression and was being treated for a bleeding ulcer. Were not these clear signs of a life out of balance? Doesn't God use physical unrest as a method of telling us something's out of alignment? In questioning this gentle, godly man about his current life picture, I discovered his naive theological view. He simply thought that if he were committed to God, somehow everything would just work out. He said he was guilty of sanctified ignorance. And I've been reminded of that poignant phrase hundreds of times since than in working with people with that same flawed belief. Now again, wow, godly guy doing what he thought was godly work, but it wasn't a fit for him. You can't force it to be a fit if in fact it doesn't match up with what God originally created you to do. Okay. I will have to say that we had a good ending to that as well. I mean, Pastor Jones, with his sanctified ignorance, yeah, he's redesigning his life. I mean, this was a couple years ago, so he's well on the way. This, the years of moving off track, can't be recaptured completely, but he can redirect to capture the value of his remaining years. He's working in an engineering firm with many opportunities to share his faith and values. His income has dramatically increased reducing the stress and resentment of his wife and children. He's on a stringent program to reduce his weight and is experiencing the immediate satisfaction of the tiny steps of success. Godly insight and action are replacing his years of sanctified ignorance. So, Jacob, no, don't give up. And you don't need to anticipate spending the next 20 years of your life being faithful to God by working in a job that drains the life out of you. I mean, here's what some of the outcomes are of trying to just stay with that job, knowing it doesn't fit you, knowing, I mean, the, the phrases that I get from people are just poignant beyond belief. You know, I feel like a ball lost in tall weeds. You know, I feel like I've been given my six seconds to sing and I'm singing the wrong song. I feel like a prostitute. I've exchanged my life for a paycheck. I mean, it goes on and on and on, but If you're in a job that drains the life from you, if you're in something that is not fulfilling to you, you can't use your best talents under those circumstances. I mean, it's clear that that's not happening for you. You're compromising your health. And we're commanded by God to take care of the temple that he gave us. If you're seeing physical signs of stress and overwork, You need to take a fresh look at that. There's a stewardship issue in the accountability we have to take care of ourselves. This is not just about, you know, feel good again, as a selfish thing, we're commanded to take care of the temple that we have. And when we see people that are just ignoring that, wow, there's an accountability there that I don't want to have to be responsible for. Well, if you're in this job that is draining you, you're draining yourself emotionally. So when you come home, you have a little to offer your family. And you can't completely, certainly you can't completely hide your unrest and dissatisfaction. So you're probably not being salt and light to the the world. I mean, are people going to see you and think, wow, I want to be living a life just like that? Probably not. 
And if we're going to be salt and light, I mean, there's so many guidelines for what we should be called to do that would walk us away from work that is not fulfilling. That's not meaningful. Now, when I say this, I mean, I certainly work with a lot of people where we create a transition. I mean, I'm not telling anybody, certainly not telling you, Jacob, just quit what you're doing. We'll figure something out. No, create a plan, but you can create that plan. I mean, one of the things that Joanna and I have used for years is two weeks to make even a major decision. I'm going to come back to 48 days to actually create a plan to transition in just a second. But we take two weeks to make even major decisions. I mean, we know that indecision is a crippler. I mean, indecision is the greatest thief of opportunity. People get caught in indecision, whether it's what kind of car to buy, you know, where they're going to live, what kind of, where, where they're going to go to church, where they're going to send the kids to college. I mean, those things and certainly many more that are certainly less important. I mean, what kind of lawnmower you're going to buy? See, people get stuck in indecision and, and those kind of things. But now what, what Joanna and I have agreed to do, now I, I'm one to pull the trigger quickly. That's probably pretty obvious. Joanna is much more thoughtful, introspective, lots to gather more information. So our compromise is two weeks. To her, that's a short period. To me, that's a long period of time to make a decision. But what we do is state the problem. Number two, get the advice and opinions of other people. Number three, list the alternatives. Number four, choose the best alternative. Number five, act. And that's a process you can go through with any decision you have to make in a two-week period of time. Shorten it or lengthen it if you need, but don't get caught in a decision because it does ripple out into other areas of your life and cause you to be incompetent, ineffective in other areas, which is part of Jacob's original question. If it's a matter of changing a job. Sure. I believe in the 48 days process, the 48 days being a reasonable time frame in which you can make that complete transition. Now, here's why I use 48 days in the early days of me working as a career coach, working with people going through transitions, they'd come in, they describe the job they hate. how it's sucking the life out of them causing compromises in other areas of their life. We'd map out a plan for transition and I'd see them two years later and they hadn't done anything. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. What's up with that? And people say, well, you know, I was waiting until the kids get out of high school. Yeah, I was waiting until I get that next degree. I was waiting until we got out of debt. And so they're waiting for all the lights to be green. And all of a sudden life happens and years go by. It was because of that, that I thought we have got to have a timeline where it's not just when things suit or when everything is lined up, let's just create a timeline. Now this was back when 48 hours was becoming popular as a TV show. And I thought, well, I'll bet we could get some brand recognition if we use 48 and we didn't use hours, but days, 48 days. Now here's the thing. It's an unusual number. It's not 30 days or 90 days or a year or a week or a month. Those are just common generic things that don't really get our attention. But 48 When I used 48 days to the work you love, it was like somebody threw gasoline on my business. People immediately were raising their hands saying, you mean I really can change my life in 48 days? My response has always been, yes, you can, if you create a plan and act on it. Now, it wasn't scientifically derived. I didn't do massive, you know, 20-year study to determine that's the magic number. No, it, it was more art than science. I'm the first to admit that. But it's worked wonders. And it has helped countless people 
go through the transition to move from something that is less than effective, less than fulfilling, and is destructive into something where they're fulfilled, it's productive, profitable, the things that I talk about each week at the end of the show. That's the kind of work that you want. Don't think that it's selfish and greedy. No, it's using the very best that God has given you. It's being a good steward of the things that he's offered you. I mean, it tells us in Psalms, you know, delight yourself in the Lord to give you the desires of your heart. You want to follow the desires of your heart. That's being selfish. It's being a good steward and doing exactly what God expects us to do. Walk that out. Let me tell you one more story here and then we'll wrap up. In 48 days, I say several years ago, I saw a young surgeon who had gone to Harvard Medical School, as had his father and grandfather. He had the finest cars and opportunities along the way, and yet something was amiss. By the time he came to see me, he was shooting heroin into the heels of his feet, the heels being the only parts of his body where he had not abused the veins. He had been admitted to a psychiatric hospital in an attempt to save his life. While working with me, he expressed his childhood dream of driving a truck. Today, he works as an emergency room physician on the weekends and is still able to make a significant income. During the week, he drives a snack delivery truck. He's moved out to the country and is getting his life in order. On Proverbs 22.6, we find, Teach a child about the way he should go, even when he's old and not depart from it. Well, that verse has been distorted a whole lot to justify cramming spiritual principles onto impressionable children to make certain their theology matches that of their parents and to force a child to move up academically and socioeconomically from their parents. But a truer reading of that original text might be train up a child in the way that he or she is bent. And the challenge we have as parents is to discover how God has uniquely gifted this child and how the parent can help the child excel in that area. Thus, there will be times when a son of a surgeon will be most gifted as a truck driver or a carpenter or a musician or missionary. Well-intentioned parents, teachers, pastors, and others in positions of influence can easily misdirect an impressionable child if external opportunities are the only criteria for career selection. The power of confidence in career choice comes from looking inward for the alignment of personal characteristics, not from looking outward to where opportunities lie. Now, here's some of the things that cause misdirected influences in choosing a career. What will be in the most demand? I mean, really, when you think about it, I mean, I was talking with uh, Dr. Brian Dixon, who's on our team yesterday, and we were talking about all the things we thought we had to have three years ago as business tools that aren't even available anymore how quickly things are changing. And I said, how can we project three years out from now in knowing what is going to be important? Well, we really can't. There's a lot of things we can't see. When you think about starting college today and you have four years ahead of us, you know that a whole lot of things that college freshmen are using are learning will not even be relevant by the time they graduate as seniors. Things are changing so rapidly. Other questions that are being asked, what are the most godly, humanitarian, or socially or environmentally responsible careers? Now, while honorable, using these as external criteria can misdirect a person from doing what is a proper fit. Or how about this one? This is one I hear a lot. What's the most secure? Oh my gosh. I mean, security is a slippery concept in today's work environment. 
mean, there's little security that's going to be found in any company or job. The only security is understanding yourself. That is going to provide a compass for navigating these inevitable and relentless changes we're confronted with. Or how about this, Dan, how can I achieve position status and power? I mean, this is likely to be an elusive path leading to rapid burnout. Takes people into directions that are not fit for them day after day after day. Or where can I get the greatest income? When this is similar to how can I achieve position status and power? But if you just look at the money, it's likely going to stay just out of your grasp. Um, I met Dave Anderson years ago who has famous Dave's restaurants, which we love. Met him at a writer's conference in Los Angeles in, in the, in the elevator going down to the conference. You know, I asked him a little bit about his background. He said, man, when he was young, he was raised in just abject poverty, raised as an American Indian, very, very poor on a reservation. He just determined he was not going to be poor. So he chased every money-making scheme known to man, tried all kinds of things. And he said, as long as he was chasing money, it just seemed to stay just out of reach. When he really just took a deep breath and said, okay, I'm going to give up on that. I'm just going to do what I love to do. What God has gifted me to do, the desires he's put in my heart, I'm just going to make great, great barbecue. They would think, well, geez, there's a whole lot of people doing that. There's a whole lot of restaurants. Yeah, but if that's your fit, if that's your passion, that's still your best opportunity for really excelling. And that's, of course, what Dave Anderson did. And today there's our famous Dave's all over the country. He's got a foundation that helps other little American Indian kids with education. He's got books and teaching programs, some really cool things that he's doing. That's the power of that proper fit. Just like Rob, who I mentioned earlier, the artist whose art piece I have here in my office. Why would I recommend if I were just looking at the idea of he needs to be a responsible dad and create the income for five children? Would I recommend that he become an artist? Not a chance in the world. The odds are totally against us. You know, what we hear about artists, starving artists. We hear that all the time. But in Rob's case, we ignored that. We ignored those generalities because that's what he was fitted for. That's where his passion was. He would describe when he would create art, he would go into a bedroom in their tiny little rented house, close the door. He would put on Beethoven or Mozart. I mean, it still gives me goosebumps when I think about him describing that sense of being in the zone when he would paint that's when he came alive, when everything else just dropped away when he came alive. That's what we're looking for when you find that you can trust that as being God's direction as much as anything else. Well, there's all kinds of other misdirected questions that people ask, what I encourage people to, to ask themselves when they're looking for that right career direction is, what was I born to do? What could be my greatest contribution to others? What do I really love to do? And what I'm doing at time just flies by. What are those recurring themes that I find myself drawn to? How do I want to be remembered? You know, one of the reasons I enjoy working with people who have a little life experience, so to say, I mean, I don't do a lot of work with those who are 18 years old or 22 years old. I tell people and parents all the time, hey, do whatever you want to. There's not a whole lot that you could do that I would consider a mistake get some experiences. If we can sit down when you're 45 years old, take a fresh look at how God has gifted you and really have the value, the wisdom of life experience that we can look back on and see those recurring patterns. Then we can get a real clear focus, a real clear sense of what are you prepared and positioned to do. And you can go into the most productive 20 years of your life, 30 years, 40 years, starting then. 
We see that played out again and again and again. That's what we want. We want that fit, that sense of being in the right place. When I talk to my 84-year-old cousin who has been a farmer all of his life, now let me just add something here to that as well. He hasn't just struggled along at the bottom of the barrel. He's been extremely successful. His operation is multi, multi-million dollars in revenue every year. He is an extremely wealthy guy. So it's not like he just missed everything, but you know the triad. You know the Venn diagram that I talk about so frequently. That is the blend of passion, talent, and money. They have to all be there. In light of one not being there, it's a two-legged stool that'll fall over. In my cousin's case, he had talent. That was developed without question. Money in abundance, but the passion was never there. He still feels like he missed the right direction. He missed what he really could have done if he had had an opportunity to really wipe the slate clean and take a fresh look at how God had positioned him. So Jacob... I would encourage you to give yourself 45 days, 48 days, not 45 days. Where'd that come from? 48 days to create a new plan, to have a new plan in place. I mean, commit to a life plan that embraces your passions, your dreams, and your talents. I mean, uh, something that blends your unique personality. A work life that allows you to maximize your greatest gifts to the world. It's not selfish. It's not greedy. It's absolutely doing what God expects you to do. It's being a good steward of the very things that he's put in you, the gifts, talents, passions, desires of your heart, all those things. Yes, indeed. Those in fact are exactly where I want you to go with that. Well, stuck in the job. Boy, that's that's an appropriate ending or a discussion today. Hey, for some of you, this probably was a little too theological. Uh, hang in there. But if you're still here at this point, thanks for sticking around. I hope that it's struck a chord with some of you to give you hope and encouragement that you need to walk this out. This is, this is the essence of my message. This is the essence of the 48 Days to the Work You Love message. It's not just to bite the bullet and put up with what is real. No, it's to step out of the current, get off the train that everyone else is on. It doesn't have to be that way. You can find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. And I encourage you not to settle for less. Don't burn a bridge. Don't be irresponsible. But don't give up on that search that leads you to exactly that. Take it